wasp's nest. (laughs) (laughs) Gosh, pick something better. (laughs) Welcome to Charlotte Mason Says. I'm John Chindell, here with my wife, Crystal. Join us as we read and discuss the home education series. Chapter 17, Sensations and Feelings. So I noticed that this chapter starts at least a two-chapter section, and I didn't look any further beyond that. Yeah, just two sections, two chapters. The first chapter is Sensations, Educable, 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 Educable. This is why I look up pronunciations when I do my readings. How to educate children for sensations. By parents. parents. Sensations educatable by parents. So the first chapter is sensations. The second chapter is feelings. And so these are kind of sensations and feelings parts one and two. Mm -hmm. It's weird because... As we'll see, she has a list of three things, sensations, feelings, and emotions. So it's kind of weird that it's missing the feelings educable by parents. Emotions. Missing emotions. Yes. Emotions. Sorry. That's what she said, and I heard it. Okay. That's strange. I should have looked that up earlier and found out if there's a parents' review article out there somewhere. And that should be part three of this section. Yeah, because there's no... Yeah, you can go to the front. I could. Or I could flip through chapter by chapter. Ooh, the eternal child. That's the last chapter. Okay. Common sense. What do you think common sense is? Not common. Other than that. Common. Am I helping? No. Okay. No, not at all. Common sense. <laughs> is good sense and sound judgment in practical matters, according to the dictionary. Does she define common sense in here? Yes, at the top of page 179. Common sense is judgments formed upon inherited knowledge. Oh, okay. It's right there. She talks about the fact that She goes with a food analogy first. That children whose parents have little theoretic knowledge of the values of various foodstuffs are often thoroughly nourished. So even when they don't know why, they feed them good food and they rely on common sense. And sometimes it's better if they are given or scientific consideration is given to what they eat. Yeah. But she also says. It's good to know that most common sense has some sort of scientific fact behind it, even though that fact is forgotten. Right. Or even if that fact is forgotten. There are a couple statements she makes in this chapter that are very uh, trapped in the, that are very dated, that did not age well. And I think food here is one of them, especially for uh, Americans. Since the, gosh, since the Industrial Revolution, I don't know, over the last some number of years food 
common food in the United States is not as healthy as it used to be. And so people who don't put thought into their food, but just buy things that they think looks good, tend to not have good diets. So I can see that. I'm guessing she's talking about people who just learned what to make and by from their parents and grandparents and just made that. Sure. And, th- and that makes sense. It's just something it, it struck me, if only because of the obesity rates in the United States. It seems it seems to me that either one of two things is, is true. Either one, common sense is not as common as it used to be. Or two, the food options we have are not as good as they used to be. Or C, all of the above. So the line I have underlined is, most people suppose that the sensations, feelings, and emotions of a child are matters that take care of themselves. Indeed, we're apt to use the three terms indiscriminately without attaching very clear ideas to them. But they cover collectively a very important educational field. And through common sense, that is to say judgments formed upon inherited knowledge, often helps us to act wisely without knowing why, we shall probably act more wisely if we act reasonably. So it took me a couple readings to to figure out what she's saying here, and it helped me to remove that definition of common sense. And just say, and though, and though common sense often helps us to act wisely, we shall probably act more wisely if we act reasonably. The, the definition thrown in there kind of threw me off for a little bit, trying to figure out what she's trying to say. Mm-hmm. So before we go further, I'm going to define those three things. Sensations, feelings, and emotions. A sensation is a physical feeling or perception resulting from something that happens to or comes into contact with the body. So it's just the physical feeling or perception. Which she defines a little bit in the next section. She does. I just wanted to pull Mm -hmm. the definition. Is that Webster? I think it's dictionary.com. Okay. Whoever comes up when I hit Google. (laughs) (laughs) It's the one that comes up that I don't have to actually click on. No, that's fine. Uh, Other times you you ask or you... uh, I use Webster interchangeably with dictionary because I do. Oh, okay. I don't know. Webster's dictionary might be dictionary.com. I don't know who runs dictionary.com. I, I don't know. And then a feeling or feelings is an emotional state or reaction or the capacity to experience the sense of touch. Oh, because you feel something. Mm-hmm. You your your skin has a sense of feeling. Yeah. Okay. The Which first is, one was a feeling of joy. The third one, or the second one, is a a loss of feeling in the hands, or the sensation of touching, or being touched by a particular thing. The feeling of water against your skin. Right, and by the by the difference in definitions between sensation and feeling i would say that the second definition there is a sensation it is the sensation of feeling things more like a a synonym to feeling yes in that in that definition right so then the third one emotion is a natural instinctive state of mind deriving from one's circumstances mood, or relationship with others. Okay, so sensation was... The physical feeling. The physical feeling. 
A feeling is the emotional state or reaction. And the emotion was the mental state? The natural instinctive state of mind derived from the circumstances, mood, or relationships. Interesting. And emotion is instinctive or intuitive feeling as distinguished from reasoning or knowledge. So it's kind of the more baseline, the uh, more primitive. Emotion? Mm-hmm. The instinctive, intuitive feeling. I wonder if that's why she doesn't touch on it. Or doesn't touch on it directly anyway. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I also wonder if she doesn't touch on it during the next chapter. Kind of lumps them together. Yeah, because those two are very close. So I just wanted to, to go talk to dictionary.com for a little bit before we proceed with the Miss Mason's dictionary. None of the headings in the next chapter talk about emotions. No, that makes sense. Uh, so she says in the next section here, she she says, let's first consider sensations. She says, we speak of sensation of cold and of heat and of pain, and we're right. But we speak of sensation of fear and pleasure, and we're wrong. So she, she goes on to say the sensations, the sensations, those that word, man. The sensations have their origin in impressions received by the several organs of sense, eye, tongue, nostrils, ear, and the surface of the external skin and are conveyed by the sensory nerves. That's really cool. She's the rest of the chapter she goes through each one in mm-hmm. turn, each each sense sensory organ. And this book, uh, Professor Clifford's little book Seeing and Thinking, it's on archive.org so we can go read that if you nice. want. Nice. I'd be curious. It, it is actually a set of lectures given in his nature series. And as I was reading this, Professor Clifford died at the age of 33. Oof. He he was an English mathematician and philosopher, and he introduced what is now termed geometric algebra, a special case of the Clifford algebra named in his honor. Huh. And it's talking about mapping geometric algebra and the effect of mirroring, rotating, translating, and mapping objects into new positions. And he was the first to suggest that gravitation might be a manifestation of an underlying geometry. So he went to college at the age of 15 at King's College, London, and Trinity College, where he was elected a fellow. And then he was appointed professor of mathematics. And so he got married in, I'm sorry, he was born in 1845. He got married in 1875. And then he suffered a breakdown probably brought on by overwork because hmm. he taught and administered by day and wrote by night. Oof. And a half holiday or half year holiday in Algeria and Spain let him continue his duties for 18 months and then he collapsed again. And he went there to an island to recover but he died of tuberculosis after a few months. Well, that sucks. Leaving a widow with two children. He also wrote a collection of fairy tales. So the reason that we have his writings is because his widow and young daughters had been left totally unprovided for. And so Lucy Clifford, his wife owned the copyright of her husband's works to ma- And so to maximize the potential sales of his posthumous posthumous publications, he not only kept Clifford in the, or she not only kept Clifford in the public eye, 
but also helped ensure that it was a generally positive and thus marketable portrayal of him that was presented. Nice. So, yeah, I saw that he died when he was 33, and I was like, what? And he did all this? That's why he died when he was 33. Yeah. he couldn't stop. Yeah, so don't overwork yourselves, guys. No one wants to die at 33. No, no, not so much. Anyways, he wrote this series, this little book called Seeing and Thinking. And I definitely studied geometric algebra. It's, it's interesting math. That's what he did? Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. Cool. Okay. And the reason she brings this up, she says, the physiology of the senses is too complicated a subject to touch upon here, but it is deeply interesting, and perhaps no better introduction exists than his little book. Interesting. I, I'd, I'd be interested to... to Take a look at that. Or to have someone else take a look at that and tell me what it was about. Don't look at me. (laughs) But you're the only other person in here who would do that. I'm the only person who would do that for you. I'm not doing that. I've got too much. Too much. Nah, you don't have anything else going on. (laughs) You're not 33 yet. You can can keep pushing. Oh, goodness. (laughs) Yeah. Like you want that. (laughs) I'll get you a nice big old life insurance policy. So I can work myself to death. <laughs> now it's on tape, though. And then I can hire a nanny and a cook and a and a butler. And I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know how to get back into this. <laughs> now the senses are the five gateways of knowledge. And an intelligent person should be aware of and capable of forming judgments upon the sensations he receives. So they should be treated objectively, not nice or disgusting or anything like that. Just when you're teaching a child about sensations, you should uh, dwell on the things that are tangible. Well, the example she gives here is marmalade. She says it's interesting, not because it's nice, but because one can discern it in different flavors and the modifying effect of the oil secreted in the rind of the orange. And she goes on to describe any number of items throughout this chapter and describe what sensations they have as opposed to how it makes you feel. And I thought it was interesting at the end here. She says a useful piece of education is this of causing a child's interest to center on the objects which produce his sensations and not in himself as the receiver of those sensations. So the sensations, we need to teach our children to to focus on the object, not on what the object is causing in me. Mm-hmm. Kind of the, the sensation rather than the emotion. Right. So when you're... When you're feeling something, you need to feel if it's hard or soft, not if it feels good or bad. Mm-hmm. Not how does it make me feel, but what does it feel like? What is the feeling? What is the sensation? Yeah. So then she starts talking about object lessons and why they are in disfavor at her time. I feel like object lessons are probably those things that have been flow in, in use in education. 
Well, and the definition probably changes as well over time. Because I feel like I feel like object lesson is a term that's used frequently. But I could be wrong. So I think the the things that the things that she says that make object lessons not that great are one miserable fragments are presented which have to the children which have little of the character of the object in C2 and they're apt to convey inadequate if wrong if not wrong ideas and in the next place it's normally used as a means to an end to introduce hard words which won't become a part of the children's thought until they teach them themselves right things like opaque and translucent Mm-hmm. convex and concave and she says even though you know those are the two ways that they're used nowadays and that's bad we cannot overlook the use she says no child can grow up without daily object teaching whether casual or of set purpose and the more thorough this is the more intelligent and observant he will become well like anything else practice makes perfect and the more you practice a skill the better you are at it yep Michael Jordan used to say, it's not practice that makes perfect, it's perfect practice that makes perfect. So it doesn't matter how much you practice. If you're practicing the wrong things, you're not going to get better. Mm-hmm. Well, she the, she now has set up herself. There's casual object teaching and set purpose object teaching. Mm. She starts out with a baby because the baby's a wonderful teacher. They are. Because, you know, the baby's only pupil is himself, but Mm -hmm. he knows nothing. He is... (laughs) He is profoundly ignorant (laughs) of the nature of the contents of this unintelligible world. Just like Jon Snow. Sorry, that's a bad Game of Thrones reference. But yeah, babies don't know anything. But they get to experience everything and they have to learn. And she says uh, he bangs his spoon to try it if it produces sound. He sucks it to try its flavor. He fumbles it all over and no doubt finds out whether it's hard or soft, hot or cold, rough or smooth. He gazes at it with the long gazes of infancy so that he may learn the look of it. It's an old friend and an object of desire when he sees it again. So we've got hearing, taste texture and looking the only thing that's not there is the smell it is and the other thing i would say is that babies also learn physics they learn what's the effect of motion if only because they like to drop things and see what happens what happens to this thing that i'm holding if i let go of it Mm -hmm. and they only learn that after they learn that they can actually let go of things when they can control their fingers. When they can control their fingers in their hand and, and, and have their hand do what they want it to do. I don't know if Isaac and Lily ever did it. And honestly, I don't remember if any of our others did. But often babies will be holding two things and see a third thing that they want and get frustrated because they don't know how to hold that thing. Because they have things in their other hands already. It's kind of like a... Learning how to put it down. Yeah, because they don't know how to put things down yet. They just know how to pick things up. They have half of a weightlifter's routine down. <laughs> they pick things up. They don't know how to put things down. So anyway, 
So then she goes on, this is what happens under nature's teaching. And of course, that's a callback to last chapter where Mm -hmm. she's talking about method and system and following nature versus putting nature into a box and telling it what to do. Right. So a not so subtle nod or not so not so subtle nudging to say, don't try and force your child to learn these things. Don't put a system in place so that he can do things. Especially in the first five or six years yeah. of life. Everything, especially everything in action, is an object of intelligent curiosity to the child. That's why everyone likes cars so much. They're in motion. Cars, trains, and planes. It reminds me of whenever anybody would do work around our house. Whether it would be road work or tree work or... Gosh, they were laying uh, fiber optic cable in our neighborhood in Austin for a while. So they had a ditch witch out there and people were digging and all kinds of stuff. And our kids, especially Ian, would be perfectly content to sit out there for hours watching them do stuff. He would pull out his folding chair. He would. And he would just sit there. And my mother would sit with them. Yeah. My Our, our neighbor sent me a picture because this was right around when Abigail was born. He sent me a picture of mom sitting out there in her chair with Naomi and Ian in chairs beside her. Yep. And so, and again, to this point, the, my mom was out there with them, helping them keep their attention on this thing. Mm-hmm. And also, when we were driving back from Colorado, and it was only Ian, and it was late at night. Well, maybe only like nine o'clock at night. I was late but for we, him. But we stopped at the side of the road because he was just inconsolable at that point. And we were in the middle of almost nowhere, New Mexico. But there were cars driving by. And he would see the headlights and point at the car and watch it as it went by. And then catch another one going the other way and watch it go by. I don't remember that. It was it was it was in a little small town on a road that it wasn't a major road it wasn't like i-25 or anything but we stopped it was we were just basically sitting on the side of the road in this little tiny town and he would point and watch the cars going each way huh because all he could see was the headlights until they got really close yeah yeah he's always been fascinated with motion yeah he has a thousand questions to ask he wants to know about everything he has, in fact, an inordinate appetite for knowledge. And then this is section she says is bad, which this is Charlotte Mason saying reading books is bad. <laughs> right. This made me <laughs> chuckle. We soon cure all of that. We occupy him with books instead of things. We evoke other desires in the place of the desire to know. And we succeed in bringing up the unobservant man and more unobservant woman who discerns no difference between an elm poplar and a lime tree and misses very much of the joy of living so are we doing a disservice to our children by giving them books we're doing a disservice by replacing objects with books okay replacing the knowledge and the tangible growth that they get from holding and feeling things with books 
No, that makes sense. It's like giving them books about painting and never letting them actually paint. Right. And also, this is, she 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 qualified this. This is the first five or six years. Yeah, I guess that's true. Or it's like giving them a book with an apple and saying, this is an apple, this is an apple, this is an apple, and never give, handing them Never an giving apple. them an actual apple. No, that, uh, that makes sense. That makes sense. So. Yeah. It was something, no. I went to a session at one of the homeschool conventions with Kathy Lee and Leslie Richards, who wrote The Homegrown Preschooler. And that was one very tangible thing that that she were, she talked about was, you know, you have a picture of an apple or you color an apple or you have this thing, but you never give a child an apple. You're not really teaching them what an apple is. You're just teaching them about an abstract thing. And due to situations in their life, she has studied a lot of brain stuff. Like huh. she... She said, you know, I probably have like a PhD in brain science unofficially based on all the studying that she's dug into for, for her family and for her children. Gotcha. Because it's been necessary. So she she throws all of this information into the homegrown preschooler. Huh. Interesting. And we get to benefit. So, so I, I think that's what that's talking about more than more than don't read to children. More than don't read to children. Don't try and replace objects. An object study with a book mm-hmm. that teaches them about objects. And then she, she talks a little about children and smelling things and how they don't know how to smell things. Mm-hmm. And it's true and it's hilarious. <laughs> watching people smell things? No, watching little children pretend to smell things. All, all three of our girls have gotten into smelling flowers. At some point or another when they were little. Put their face into the flower. Put their face into the flower and screw up their nose. <laughs> but Which John just did. Which I, I just can't see did. It. Uh, yeah, I guess. I can see it. It's a great, great podcast, podcasting right there. But they do. They stick their face in the flower. They screw up their nose because they don't actually understand what they're doing. But that's how they're shown how to smell. So they... Do that action, and and all three of our girls have have done that at some point. At some point, and really, really enjoyed flowers without really understanding what they're doing. So she touches on this a little later, also. Um, but these things that originally might come by nature, your senses and your ability to use them, if they're not cultivated. They are lost and become obtuse, which is the word she uses here. We allow ourselves to go about with obtuse nostrils. Hmm. And so so not not that these things are innate. And that, that goes back to the beginning where people suppose that the sensations, feelings, and emotions of a child are matters that take care of themselves. Because the, they come by nature. They're natural. Everybody does them. So it's fine. Right. But she's saying, no, you have to educate them on how to use their sensations yeah and we are more hell-bent on educating other things and so the chances of losing some losing the education of the senses chances of losing that are greater than they have been in the past so two points 
call for our attention in the education of the senses. One, we must assist the child to educate himself on nature's lines. So, back to self-education. The only education is self-education. And two, we must take care not to supplant and crowd out nature and her methods with, and I put quotes here, that which we call education. Yeah, that does seem like she's singling that phrase out. We can't choke the child with education. I feel like there needs to be a definitive difference between schooling and education. And I think that it's, that's one thing she's constantly bringing out is, you know, education is a life. You, you always educate. Yeah. The only education is self-education. And, and while that's true, we still do need to recognize the fact that there is a period of time in life schooling that we know as education. Right. You know, you're, you're K through 12 and plus college. That is what is formally referred to as education. But that's academic education. That's what I'm calling schooling. Right, right. Well, and since education is life or learning is a lifelong activity, but schooling is not, schooling is more preparing you to be able to have the mental skills required to work as an adult. Schooling is the formal ways of learning how to get education. Oh, okay. That that makes sense. How to, and and using these formative years to kind of cram all it in. Like the baby. Your baby's brand new. You're you're cramming all the information about the spoon in. Because that's what happens. And then they'll move on to the next thing. And I think that's an important distinctive because Charlotte Mason does have a method of education. Mm-hmm. It is not unschooling. It is not a child-led education. And there there are very distinctive things that have come up in, in today's education world. That's not what Charlotte Mason is talking about. Mm. Because she does have a very definitive prescriptive way of doing things right that she wouldn't let other other schools do her methods if they didn't stick to her timetables if they didn't do x y and z they they were not a part of the pneu they were not a charlotte mason school interesting so so it it is a very good distinctive to talk about whether it's life as education or um, intentional education in a method. Right. Right. So. But she's she's bashing on a system again because that crowds out nature. It makes me really interested to, after we finish this book, go back and reread it. Having having all of the knowledge from the from the rest of the book. Having the buildup? Having, having, well, I, I mean, when we started this book, I, I didn't know what was in the rest of it. Mm-hmm. That's why rereads are so important. Right. And so. That's it, why you've reread the Wheel of Time. That's why I'm on my third reread of it. I'm yeah. in the middle of it now. And I still can't put it down. But yeah, it, it makes me, 
when when we finish this, I will be interested to go back and reread it. I think there was a recommendation to teachers of the Charlotte Mason method to read through the series every two every two years. Yeah, I remember that. We so need to, we need to speed up our pace. <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> okay, so that was starting to talk about object lessons. No, that's starting no, to talk about just education of the, of the senses. So then she does talk about object lessons and she says they should be incidental. And this is where the family enjoys so great an advantage over the school. Because the family can do object lessons whenever it darn well wants to. Because it's almost impossible for the school to give anything but set lessons. You know, today we're doing the apple, tomorrow the banana. Mm-hmm. But the family, everything, the the wasp's nest, and all of the things that they can learn about that, which, frankly, I don't know if I would be having my teacher, my children touch a wasp nest to figure out if it's not cold to the touch. But what if you've sprayed it and you know that there's nothing in it? Then it's full of chemicals and I'm not letting my children touch a wasp nest. What if... All the wasps. I mean, what if it's an empty dormant nest, though? Sure. I wouldn't go within twenty yards of it. But <laughs> John despises wasps. I, I, I am the wasp killer of the house. She is. Which we kill wasps because they can be dangerous and they're not allowed around our house. If I find them out in the woods, we'll just stay away from them. But around our house, that's not happening. The wasps die. But not by I, me. I run away from them. I, I captured one one time because it was large. It was a really big one. And kept it in a Tupperware container. It was On huge. our counter. And it took forever to die. And it tormented John for so long. And he didn't say anything. And he told me about it later. And I felt kind of bad. But it was really cool watching it. It was... Was it the cicada killer? Yeah, that's what it was. It was the cicada killer wasp. The thing was huge. Uh, They're typically one and a half to two inches in length. So we don't need wasp nests to have common objects fall under our observation. Right? She talks about rocks, (laughs) bread, dirt. Grass. A lump of coal. Wasp's nest. (laughs) (laughs) Gosh. Pick something better. Talks about, you know, as we're eating, we observe that it's absorbent. And then we talk about, you know, what else is absorbent? And is it more absorbent or less absorbent? And she talks about the the intention, or I'm sorry, not the intention, the... Importance. She talks about the importance of a child or a person knowing the difference between a comparative term and a positive term. A comparative term is where you are comparing it to other things, mm-hmm. whether it's high, low, sweet, bitter, long, short, agreeable, etc. But positive terms are square, round, black, white. It doesn't matter what other things are. That is what that is. It's a descriptor. A descriptor. That that thing is that color. It's not good or bad. 
it just is. Mm-hmm. Or how tall it is. It's not that it's taller than something else. It's that it is three feet tall. But to say it's tall is a uh, comparative term. To say it's tall would be, but to say it's three feet tall. That's a positive term. Would be a positive term. The descriptive term. And then again, that leads into the indiscriminate use of epitaphs. Take care. Half the dissensions in the world arise from the indiscriminate use of epitaphs. Epitaphs? Epithets? Epithets. Epithets. Clearly, I don't know how to pronounce words. And then this is... The, the power of judging of weight is worth cultivating. So here she gets into, we've talked a lot about why it's important. We've talked about what object lessons are. We've talked about how children learn things. We've talked about why the family is, a, is better than the school for it. We've, and now she's getting practical. And now she's going to get practical. And we're going to talk about weight, size, sounds odors, flavor, and then we're going to talk about how to train those things. And so I don't know how much detail we want to get into get into here. I honestly don't have anything else highlighted for the rest of this chapter because I, I don't know. Because you don't? Because I well, don't. Let me, let me go here. The, at the end, there's this, I guess it's Latin. Cateris paribus, which is, with all other conditions remaining the same. So, if everything else remains the same, one has a greater respect for the man who made an accurate judgment than for the vague person. And so that can be applied to all of these things. Yeah. Where if you are accurate, then you will be more respected for that accuracy. Mm Mm-hmm. So yeah, talking about weight, train yourself with weight it and test yourself. You know, hey, let's let's have a game of this. How heavy do you think it is? Mm-hmm. Okay, let's weigh it now. How tall do you think this is? Okay, let's measure it now. And so as you practice that, then the skill becomes greater. Right. Um, well, and, and like she says at the end here, she says, uh, trained to observe, that by degrees the children are trained to observe that the relative weights of objects depend on their relative density and are introduced to the fact that we have a standard of weight. So understanding the weight of something leads to the next step in the, the scientific process. Mm-hmm. So you can see that, that two things have the same size but one is heavier than the other. A bowling ball is heavier than a basketball, mm-hmm. but they're the same size. So then you start getting into those questions. And then you can, again, you can talk about things falling. Well, which falls faster, a bowling ball or a basketball? Mm-hmm. And then you get to do the fun experiment where you drop a brick with the little feather on top of it. So the brick is breaking all the wind and the feather falls as fast as the brick. <laughs> And so, so just by, just by being observant, you can start moving into some of those scientific principles. And cultivating uh, observ- observancy, cultivating the power of observation. Cultivating the power of observation, which again is what early science was built on is observing something and trying to figure out why it did what it did. Mm-hmm. 
This sort of practice will secure for the children what is called a correct or true eye, talking about measurements. And then she says a quick and true ear is another possession that does not come by nature, or anyways, if it does, it is too often lost. So close their, have the kids close their eyes, learn the sounds of the birds, distinguish what passing vehicles are happening. Mrs. Kerwin's Child Pianist is a book that's still available, again, on archive.org. But MissMasonsMusic.com has pulled it into modern day usage. Oh, nice. So I'm going to be looking into that. Very cool. There are there are many people pulling lots of these things that she has referenced into more practical use in our century. Which makes a lot of sense because we don't live in the late 1800s. Mm-hmm. And again, for the sound, she's saying, you know, it doesn't matter if the child becomes a performer or not. If they have acquired a correct ear, then they can appreciate the music. Mm-hmm. Because you have to have a performer, and a performer, by definition, needs an audience. Right. We can't all be performers. And then odors also. Before we get into oh, odors, okay. uh, the descri- you're, you're talking about sounds here. She she says, uh, distinguish passing vehicles by the, their sounds. There was a Super Bowl commercial at one point. I don't remember when, but it was two little boys sitting in their bedroom and at night with all the lights out. And they would hear the sound of a car driving down the road. And the older brother would quiz the younger brother. All right, what car is that? <laughs> so the little brother would say what car it is. Like, oh, it's a 455 Chevy. Oh, that was an 86 Corvette Stingray. You know, it's like, it was four or five cars. And then there was one and the little brother was like, oh, I don't know what that one is. And they look outside and it was whatever car the commercial was for. But... But that's what that reminds me of. Oh, like a brand new type of yeah, car? Yeah, it was a brand, new, a brand new sports car. I was like, whoa, that's the new one. Huh. I didn't know what it sounded like. And so that's what that reminds me of is those two little boys who had studied the sound of the cars on their street so well that they could pick them mm-hmm. just by listening to it. Or maybe the brother asked what color it was. Either way, that's impressive. Yeah, it was it was a fun commercial. I don't remember what they were selling. They were selling a car. <laughs> I don't remember which one. And she talks about odors and how, in fact, odors and detecting odors is a health concern. Mm-hmm. See gas and the smell of it. Mm-hmm. That's I I we just transferred and got new gas so. They sent all the pamphlets, and mm-hmm. one of the pamphlets was like, why does your gas smell? Natural gas is odorless. Right. But they add a sulfur smell. They do. So that you can detect when it's leaking. Which is very important. So the, the what is it, olfactory senses of some people ha- are in, incredibly attuned. Mm-hmm. And I was reading an article about someone who smelled... Uh, dementia on her husband and yeah like that like there was just this this odor it was either dementia or alzheimer's some some that's weird some disease and 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 he has eventually passed 
But now she's using her sense of smell. Like she would walk into a room with all these people with this and she would get overwhelmed. Be like, this, I, I gotta leave because this this weird tangible smell about it was overpowering in the room with people with all of this condition. Huh. And so now she is, researchers are using her knowledge and her ability to detect this by smell to develop, I don't know what. Yeah. But, new detection techniques. Yeah. Interesting. Because if it puts off a smell, the question is why? Yeah. And what causes that smell? And can we detect it? Can yeah. We, can we detect the the chemicals in the air that are causing that smell? And if we can pinpoint those, then we can give people breath tests. Yeah. Or or stand in a room and smell tests. And it will get caught so much sooner. Yeah. Because at the time when she first started smelling it on him, it was like no, nothing was wrong. Huh. But but as it continued, he and then he then he started to to digress physically. Interesting. So, yeah. Interesting. That's fascinating. And again, you know, you smell your food to make sure it hasn't gone bad. Smell your food to make sure it hasn't gone bad. You smell the. Yeah, you definitely smell the milk. I definitely had milk go bad after you left. <laughs> and I drank it once and was like, that tasted kind of goofy. <laughs> maybe maybe I just don't remember what milk is supposed to taste like. Can I put it back? <laughs> and it was like two days later. I was like, man, milk would be really good. And I pulled out the milk and opened it up and went, last time this tasted funny. So I took a <laughs> sniff and went, well, that smells really funny. <laughs> I'm just going to put it right back in the refrigerator. <laughs> so there's a quote here. Sensation sweet felt in the blood and felt along the heart. This is from Dracula? Wordsworth. Oh, okay. Lines composed a few miles above Tenturn Abbey on revisiting the banks of the Wye during a tour. July 13th. 1798. Oh, that was that one with the very obscure title that we talked about earlier. Yes, it was. It was in on page 81. Yeah, that was that was the one that we couldn't figure out where or when he did it. He wrote that poem. Uh, the burden of the mystery, the heavy and the weary weight of all this unintelligible world was his the, the former quote. So I printed it out and i'm actually going to read it after we're done talking because you know she's quoted it twice now not just the same poet but the the same poem the same obscure poem that we don't know where or when he wrote it it says uh, no you're horrible <laughs> like it says it right you're horrible that was so much sarcasm Horrible. It's the the title of it. That's sorry. <laughs> Lines composed a few miles above Tintern Abbey. I don't know where it was written. On revisiting the banks of the Wye during a tour, July 13, 1798. When did he write it? And where? Gosh. It, it makes me laugh because normally things are titled. A summer breeze. <laughs> a jaunt through the woods. But this one, he's like, man, I need a, I need a title for this poem. 
He was racking his brain, racking his brain. You know what? Screw it. But Location, it made me recognize it. Date, place, done. That's the title. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> but it made me recognize it. Spent so. all of his creative juices on the poem itself and had nothing left. Anyways. <laughs> Sorry. Now that we have thoroughly displayed my lack of sleep. Odors enter more readily than other sense perceptions into those sensations sweet felt in the blood and felt along the heart. Where smells are linked with something. Whether it's joy or sorrow or mm-hmm. relief or anything. Bodily functions. Or throw up. <laughs> there was a time very early in our marriage where we had spaghetti and drank vodka. And it came back up for one of us. And it wasn't Crystal. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just absolutely disgusting. So, you know, fast forward a couple of years, we're in the grocery store looking at different types of spaghetti sauce to buy. It's like, oh, this looks good. It's, you know, a vodka marinara sauce. Like, sure, we'll try this. I open it and was instantly. No, it was me. You opened it? I opened it. And the memory of standing over the sink (laughs) cleaning it out because I didn't, I I couldn't make it all the way to the toilet. It was coming up and I went to the first receptacle I could. And as soon as it came up, Crystal from the other room was like, you're cleaning that up. I know. (laughs) And so I opened it up and, oh, man, that sensation of standing over the sink, staring down at this, it it washed over me again. It came right back. And I closed the lid. I said, nope, not doing it. We threw that away. Threw it away. Immediately. <laughs> oh, it was so bad. Oh man. It's very intense. And I don't I don't touch vodka anymore. It's not a not a drink that agrees with me. And that might be one of the reasons why. It's because of that vodka marinara sauce that I created. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> Needless to say, odors and uh memories are very very tied together they are they are this next quote comes from walt whitman a song of myself section two who as she says was an american poet i wonder if this actually has music to go with it houses and rooms are full of perfumes the shelves are crowded with perfumes i breathe the fragrance myself and know it and like it The atmosphere is not a perfume. It has no taste of the distillation. It is odorless. It is for my mouth forever. I am in love with it. The sniff of green leaves and dry leaves and of the shore and dark colored sea rocks and of hay in the barn. So I didn't keep going and write it down. He goes on to talk about the smell of belching. Oh, it's a distinctive smell. <laughs> and it's bad when it smells like rotten eggs. So. You know you know something goofy going on inside of you when it smells like rotten eggs. Let me tell you. You didn't know that. I tend not to analyze my belches. 
Which might be an issue because, you know, she says here we've yet arrived at a scale of odors as we have of sound or flavor or of yeah. color. That's true. So smell. That smell. And then flavor. And again, talking about how to distinguish different types of flavor. And make flavor a source of interest rather than of sensuous pleasure to children. So analyze it instead of just enjoy it. Well, it's a difference, again, between sensation and feeling. Yeah. And this, I thought, was a very interesting piece of parenting advice. It is not well to make a child eat what he does not like, as that would make him dislike that particular dish always. But let him feel that he shows a want of self-control and manliness. When he expresses distaste for wholesome food, that's likely to have a lasting effect. Yeah. Again, get the child's will on your side. Mm-hmm. And, and, and don't make the argument about that specific food. Batman eats all of his carrots. That's how he got so strong. <laughs> don't you want to be like Batman? Yeah, that's what I thought. You should eat your carrots. <laughs> <laughs> psychological games I don't think that's exactly what she's saying here but that's what you thought of that's definitely what I thought of (laughs) so those are the senses that she thinks need to be cultivated or that she went into and then we get into sensory gymnastics well we have sensory gymnastics and sensory games so they're they're kind of two sides of the coin Mm mm-hmm and here in in the first bit is another very dated description story. She says, we are apt to regard an American Indian as a quite uneducated person. This was, again, in the late 1800s. Well, keep reading. I'm just just saying, it's in, the, in the late 1800s. He is, on the contrary, highly educated insofar as that he is able to discriminate sensory impressions and to take upon these in a way which is bewildering to the book learned European. To take action upon these. Oh, what did I say? You just skipped the word action. Well, (laughs) I am a man of not action, apparently. It would be well for parents to educate a child for the first half dozen years of his life, at any rate, on red Indian lines. And she does have that in quotes. Yeah, red red Indian is, is in quotes there. It it uh, it makes me think it's dated because of the because of the context in the late 1800s. The American frontier was still relatively wild, and there were still Indians that lived more in the wild than than anybody does now in the U.S. And so I think I think her description has lost some of its its punch and its verve over the years. So it's dated, not that it's now bad, it's just dated in that it's it's dated. Okay. Because times have changed, not for better or worse. It's 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 something that you you have to remember when she's writing this to be able to understand what she's saying. She goes into a description about how they should be able to dis- dis- discriminate between things. From a few minutes study of a thing. Mm -hmm. Colors and shades, degrees of heat. 
We approach the subject by the avenue of the child's senses rather than by that of the objects to be studied. Because just now we have in view the occasional test exercises, the purpose of which is to give thorough culture to the several senses. And then talking about, you know, approaching or acquaintance with nature and natural objects is a little different. That's something else where the beetle takes initiative and the boy follows. But the one who does these sensory daily gymnastics to understand colors, shades of colors, relative degrees of heat, etc., etc., will be able to discern more about the beetle. Mm-hmm. And then games. A good game, especially at a birthday party. <laughs> yeah. Put a <laughs> bunch of crap on a table and have them touch it all. That's her game. And then go and tell you what they can find. They can remember. Mm-hmm. Rocks and sticks and grass and feathers and... A hundred objects. Can you keep going? <laughs> I could. I'm so there's 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 two games here. One is to a definitive object lessons. Not these, by the way, type things. You take a piece of, of something, a piece of bread, and say, okay... Everyone tells me something by touch. Everyone tells me something by smell, by taste, by sight. And so that's where they start learning new things about it. Because as each person says something, you know, that's crossed off the list. So they have to come up with something else. Mm -hmm. And she says, children are most ingenious in this kind of game. I would need a dictionary to come up with these words. (laughs) No doubt the best and happiest exercise of the senses springs out of a loving familiarity with the world of nature. So, get out in nature. Do these things in nature. Yeah, go be, go enjoy being outside. Go touch things and feel things and look at things and smell things and listen to things. Don't, don't feel weird that you want your child to smell everything. It, it's a good thing. It's a thing to be cultivated. And it's something to be encouraged. So when your child brings you random things that you look at and go, oh, you found a rock. You can actually start asking questions about that. Yeah. Talk, I'll ab- talk about all the different details and mm-hmm. the characteristics. Is this rock smooth? Is it? Is it hard? Is it soft? Is it light? Is it heavy? Is it big? Is it small? What color is it? So we have lava rocks in our backyard now. Um, and there was a puddle, a little a little puddle, and one of the rocks was floating. Ooh. Yeah. And Did they so, notice? Mm-hmm, Ian did. So then when we were at the Greenbelt and he saw the rocks, he was like, oh, this little one's going to float. I said, okay, let's try it. It didn't float. He's like, but it's so small. Yeah, but it's a rock. <laughs> what happened to the other rock that made it float? So he kind of thought about it. And I, I told him, you know, it has air in it. And he was mm. about to move on to something else. So that's why I went ahead and just told him because mm-hmm. we didn't have it with us to, right. to just see the difference. But yeah, just just those little connections, little yeah. things. And, and that was a false idea. The false mm-hmm. idea was that the rock would float. Mm-hmm. But... It was a connection that was made. The next, oh, that reminds me of the Monty Python and the Holy Grail bit. Yep. I thought it reminded me too. Oh, man. Where the the knight 
they're about to to burn a witch, and the knight is trying to get the people to to not burn the witch to not burn the witch. And so, it's, all right, so so witches burn, right? What else burns? One of the guys in the crowd, more witches. Okay, but they come up with wood. Like, all right, great. Wood floats, right? What else floats? And one of the guys in the crowd goes, rock, rocks. R- really little ones. <laughs> and the knight's just going, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, if you've never if you've never watched any Monty Python, you could... Only go to YouTube and watch the clips because the whole movies aren't really worth it. You should totally watch the entire movie of... And that was the Holy Grail. The Holy Grail. I've not actually seen whole movies of any of the other ones. But yeah, definitely, definitely clips of the Holy Grail. And that one's a good one for... Uh, Drawing conclusions about things. No doubt the best and happiest exercise of the senses springs out of a loving familiarity with the world of nature, but the sorts of gymnastics we have indicated render the perceptions more acute and are greatly enjoyed by children. That the sensations should not be permitted to minister unduly to the subjective consciousness of the child is the great point to be borne in mind. Thank you for listening. Join the conversation with us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. I think that's where we'll end it. So, so just look. Wordsworth? From Tenturn Abbey. Is that another one I'm supposed to know? That's the, the, this one. Lines composed a few miles above Tenturn Abbey on revisiting oh. <laughs> the banks of the Y during a tour. You mean the one that we didn't know where it was written? Shut up. <laughs> You're terrible. Honestly, I keep repeating it because I think it's hilarious that he named it that. And you keep getting me! <laughs> <laughs> Which isn't why I'm saying it. That's the funny part. Because I keep saying it because it's hilarious. And then you're like, well, but we know where it was written. And it takes me a second. I'm going, but... I know. That's that's why it's funny. <laughs> I'm like, no, I I looked it up. They we figured that out. I, I like, googled it. <laughs> yeah, it was written right. That's that's what it says. <laughs>